Good morning. Well, as you can tell, today marks the third week of Advent, and this is the season we've been talking about that emphasizes our active waiting for Christ's return. And you might wonder what I mean by actively wait. What does it mean to actively wait for something? Because you think, like, waiting is a passive activity, right? Like, something is coming towards me. I'm receiving something. Something's approaching you. But active waiting is something that we do all the time. And it's, it's something that Advent is calling us to. Uh, here's what I mean. Christmas is only, what, 12 days away? Right? Less than two weeks? And if you're more on the ball than I am, which I hope you are, uh, I'm guessing that you have set up the tree, uh, thrown up some Christmas lights, gotten some shopping lists together, maybe you've coordinated your family get-togethers. Uh, sorry, Mom, I'll, I'll get there. Um, and, and on and on, right? You've already started to prepare for Christmas. And that's what it means to actively wait, right? Preparation. Setting the stage, getting ready. And last week, when we talked about preparation, we were talking about the coming judgment of God. That great display of his wrath and evil, uh, that great display of his wrath against the evil and sin of this world that separate us from God, and he's going to just lay them, uh, he's going to lay them to waste. And so there's this character of Advent that is penitential. Right, we talk about the blue, penitential season. There's a character of Advent that's penitential where we take stock of our situation in light of the holiness of God and we begin to roll up our sleeves and we begin to get to work. You all following me on that? It's active waiting. A few weeks ago, my wife and I watched the uh, Downton Abbey movie. Are you all familiar with that series? Uh, if you're not familiar with that series, it's, it's uh, set in early 20th century and it kind of uh, follows, uh, you know, the titled elite. Um, and, and basically, during this movie, the whole premise is that the king and queen are coming to this estate. And it's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And everyone in the entire movie is frantic to put the estate in the best condition possible. I, imagine, I mean, we're Americans, right? So king and queen, we're kind of like, okay, yeah, sure. But we're also Anglicans. And so we have this high sense of, like, you know, imagine that the most respected, important people that you could ever hope to meet are coming to visit. And so in this movie, right, everybody's frantic, uh, endless acres are mowed, everything is polished and fitted and otherwise cleaned, and despite the enormity of the house, I don't think a single dust mite made it out alive, right? I mean, it was a big deal. But even in the middle of all this frenetic activity, there's this, there's this sense of excitement, this, this undercurrent of, um, uh, of joy, you know, because the king and queen are coming, and to be in their presence alone is enough to make the servants ecstatic. It's beyond their wildest dreams. And this waiting, this waiting with excitement for the coming of our Lord is the other side of Advent, waiting on the Lord in joyful expectation. Take a look with me at our um, Advent wreath. You'll notice that the third candle's lit, right? And you know something different about the third candle. It's pink. And this candle's called the shepherd candle, it's called the candle of joy. But what this candle represents and what it symbolizes for us in the third week of Advent, what we celebrate is the joyful expectation of the coming of our Lord. It's a reminder for us not to get so consumed by the suffering of the world, so withdrawn into our personal sin or carried away by shallow entertainment that pales in comparison to who is coming for us. It's a reminder for us to pay attention and stay awake and lean into the excitement of the joy of the coming of the Lord. Two points for today, only two. The first point is the good news of God's presence, good news of God's presence. 
And the second point is joyful preparation. What we do to joyfully prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, our text for today is from Isaiah 61, our Old Testament passage. And in our text for today, Isaiah 61, it was written some 700-odd years before Jesus was born. Now, tuck that away, 700 years before Jesus was born. And it was written during a particularly difficult time for the Jews, right? They had been conquered by Babylon, they had been exiled from their homeland, and they were looking for some manner of salvation. It was a rough spot. Now fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Jews are back home, but they don't have their freedom. They've been conquered over and over again. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what does he do? What does he do? Well, he gets baptized, right? Then he confronts the devil in the wilderness. But then what is his first inaugural act, his first inaugural address? It's in Luke 4. He goes to a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he takes up a scroll. And he unrolls the scroll and he reads from this text. And this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he continues. And when he's finished reading it, he sits down and all eyes are on him, just watching him. And then Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a mic drop, by the way, if you don't know the, the hand signal for that. You know, but that is, it's the ultimate mic drop. He says, I am the person that you've been waiting for for centuries. I'm the guy. Where I go, there's freedom for captives. Where I go, there's healing and there's liberty for the oppressed. That is who I am. That is what I do. Now, why does this matter? Why is it so important for us to consider this text? Well, it's his inaugural address. It sets the tone for his whole ministry. Right? It describes who he is and what he is about. We hear one of those every four to eight years in this country, don't we? This is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I'm about. And he lives into this during his ministry on earth. We see it over and over again in the Gospels, right? He has miraculous healings over and over. He exercises the demon-possessed. And when he confronts sin, and this is key because he confronts sin, when he confronts sin... It isn't just punitive finger-pointing. He confronts sin, but he also laments the damage that sin causes, and he offers a pathway to redemption. He is relentless in his love for his people. This is who God is. And most importantly in his ministry, I would argue, he preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Well... We talk about it every week, right? Gospel actually comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Godspell, if you didn't know that. And it means good news. That's all it means is good news. Gospel means good news. And you might ask what that is. Like, what is this good news that was so central to Jesus' ministry? What is this good news that he stands up and he says, I'm going to proclaim this to you now? What is the good news that we celebrate? Well, in short, you ready? What's the good news? The world is broken. Now you might wonder, how, how is that good news, right? How is that good news? The world is broken. Okay, great, thank you. But hear me out, hear me out. What that means is that God is acknowledging the pain and suffering of the world. For God to be able to say that the world is not as it is meant to be means that he is hearing the pain and suffering of the world, which means that when you cry out to him, he hears you. He doesn't downplay it. You know, he doesn't say, oh, you big baby, you know? He doesn't say, he doesn't gaslight you and accuse you of being crazy and be like, no, this is, this is a great place. And he absolutely does not ignore your cries. 
So first, the world is broken. What's the second part of the good news? Well, also, you are broken. Well, how's that good news? Well, for starters, you already know it's true. You know it's true. I know it's true. Why else do we spend so much time curating an image of ourselves that feels so hollow to who we are if we didn't know there was something wrong with us? Why else do we spend so much time and effort working to justify our own existence? You know, maybe if you achieve enough or you create enough meaning, all the broken parts that are in you will be fixed. But it doesn't work that way. And God, knowing you full well, cuts straight through all of it. The good news of the gospel of your brokenness is that God sees through all of it. No more hiding, no more games. In Jesus' ministry on earth, he goes to the woman at the well. And you remember this, right? And she might be trying to have, you know, flirting with him or trying to have this kind of light dialogue. And he cuts straight through and he says, no, you've had five husbands. And the guy you're with isn't even one of them. Straight through to the heart. To the beggar at the pool of Bethesda, he kept making excuses about why he wouldn't go into the water to be healed. And Jesus asked him, he just asked him, do you want to be healed? To Zacchaeus, the little man in the tree who, who was a thieving tax collector, he says, Zacchaeus, come here. I'm going to go to your house and we're going to talk. God seeing your brokenness and admitting your brokenness is the best news because he sees to the core of who you are like no one else can and no one else will. So again, the good news is the world is broken. You are broken. But God is going to do something about it. And he's already begun. You know, long before in our text, uh, in the text in Luke 4, long before Jesus walked into that synagogue and unrolled the scroll, God's plan was in motion. God the Son coming to earth, living and dying as one of us and rising again so that his victory could be our victory and his righteousness could be our righteousness and that we would no longer be separated from him by this impossible gap, that we could be with him in fullness. That's been his plan from the beginning. And it's still in motion. Now, for now, we only have that in part, right? Christians, do we still sin? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. But sin is no longer our master, and that's a big difference. And we still suffer, and we're still battered by this world, but we have access to this anchor of an unbreakable hope. We have this incredible lifeline. And although we have access to God through his Holy Spirit, we get but a glimpse, a glimpse of the glory of God's presence. But when he returns, he will finish what he started. He will finish what he started. And the world will be as it is intended to be without sin. You know, I would encourage you this Advent season, as you dive into Scripture, spend some time in Revelation 21 where we read about God's presence descending. This is, this is what it says. It says that when God returns in the second coming, he will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you hear that? Do you hear the hope there? The world will be as was intended to be. And we will be as we were intended to be image bearers of his divine nature and crowned with the un unfading crown of glory. 
Do you ever take a look and you're like, man, what would I tell five-year-old me or six-year-old me about what I've done with the life that was given to me? God, what have I done with the gifts that you've given me? What have I done with the talents? What have I done with uh, who you've created me to be? And every single one of us feels like we've missed at least a step, right? We took a left when we should have taken a right. But when God comes in his fullness, all of that will be redeemed and restored. Do you see why it's a joyful time for us? It's a time of healing. And best of all, most importantly of all, the best news of all is that we will be with him, the one for whom we were created. And God's presence is so central to our faith. You know, Christmas is coming. Surprise. Um, and we get inundated with all these advertisements, right? Anybody receiving these all the time? You, you get extra mail, you get extra uh, commercials, you get all these little advertisements that are coming at you. Bye, bye, bye. And as I was kind of watching this scroll through my feed last week, um, I got this cheesy little PSA. You all ready for this? This cheesy little PSA. It said, um, this year, and it had a, had a uh, you know, a parent kind of sitting on their couch with their phone out, just kind of looking at the screen, and the kids were playing on the floor. And the PSA said, this year, give the gift of presents. And this is why it was cheesy, right? You know I'm going with this. It wasn't spelt P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. It was P-R-E-S what? E-N-C-S, right? Give the gift of presents. Like, okay, fine, that's cheesy. Like, I get it. And then it went out, and I was, you know, was going to kind of blow it off. Um, and it, but then I kept reading, and I said, you know, most parents don't even spend 20 minutes of undivided, uninterrupted time with their children a day. Not even 20 minutes. And then it went on to say that that little time is enough to shape their whole life trajectory, and they've done studies on this. What is it that you can do to help shape and mold your children? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. It was a gut punch, right, to read this, but it's true. You know, what do my kids want more than anything, do you think? Monster trucks. No, they do. I mean, they do. But, I mean, that's at least what they'll tell you. But the reality is, what they want is they want me to go to the store with them and to open them with them and to get down on the floor and play monster trucks with them. And it's that time together that bonds us and that will shape them. And in an impossibly greater way, God's presence is the transformative and shaping power. Hear me say that again. God's presence is the transformative and shaping power that remakes us. And his presence with us is the promise of good news. So what's our final point? Joyful preparation. Well, what do you do when you know that the king is coming? You know, what do you do when you know that the king is coming? Well, you tidy up. You know, it's not something that you do alone. God will work in you and on you as you invite him to, but you prepare yourself to receive him. For us, that means we address the root of our sin. To let sin have its way with you is to make no effort at all to the fidelity to the one who calls you his own, right? Make no effort at fidelity to the one who calls you his own if you just let sin happen. Now, you won't be perfect. You might not even be good. But if you are a Christian, then you are his. Second, keep his coming as fixed as in your mind as the north star and set your course by it. 
If you want to look at a long-term trajectory, two weeks ago, Father uh, Chris spoke about looking over the dashboard, right? Having that in mind. If you want to set your trajectory by something in your life, set your trajectory by the second coming of Christ and let that be your North Star. Why is the North Star unique and why is the North Star used in navigation? It's because it's aligned with the Earth's axis. And so even as the Earth spins, even as time goes on, it does not move. And so for sailors, if you're in your ship and you got blown off course by a storm and you have no idea where you are, what you're doing, or what happened, how can you reset your course? You aim for the North Star. You look at the North Star and let that guide your way. In the same way, the second coming of Christ, Advent, our hope is what guides us. That is our North Star. And finally, rejoice. Like our epistle said for today, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. This is not the end. And neither the worst of this world nor the worst in you has the final say. And so I'd encourage you this Advent, spend time considering what it will mean when Christ returns for us. What it will mean when all of the brokenness in you and in the world is made whole. And you get to walk with him in glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would pull our hearts and minds to you as we seek to prepare for your return. Give us the courage to face those things in our life that are broken and the power by your grace to address them, knowing that you will make all things new in the end. I pray that we would live into that hope. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.